Hey, I'm Jordan. And I'm Kit. And we're sisters who like stars and stories. Welcome to Starry Time, where stars plus lines equals stories. Thank you for joining us here today. On our first season of Starry Time, we are going to explore each of the 12 zodiac constellations. And why is that, Jordan? Kid, it's a pretty big night sky, so we gotta start somewhere. And we felt beginning with a January constellation when we're gonna be releasing this podcast kind of makes sense. But we'll be sure to visit one zodiac constellation a month for our first season. And then, like I said, we're excited to tackle the whole night sky eventually. Future seasons will focus on cursed women, heroes with a question mark. Seemingly mundane objects in the sky, and a lot more. We hope you'll join us as we navigate meaning and metaphor in the stories of the stars. For this part of the podcast, we're going to give you a little bit of background on the astronomy and history of our constellation of the month. This month, of course, we're tackling Capricornus, which is the smallest zodiac constellation, but it does rank 40th in size among the 88 IAU-recognized constellations. Ooh, so since this is our first episode, let's just explain, who are the IAU? Kit, that's a pretty great question. The IAU stands for the International Astronomical Union. It was founded in 1919, and it's basically a professional organization for and by astronomers. And they do all sorts of organizing of conferences and outreach and education about astronomy. And the modern 88 constellations were officially established by the IAU in 1930. So they've been around for a while, and generally everyone in the astronomy community defers to the IAU when it comes to defining a constellation. So what I'm hearing is that it's very good to be the IAU. Yeah, they got they got some clout. They're they're kind of important. They're the they're the go-to if you need to know what's constellation and what's not. Mm-hmm. But let's get back to Capricornus here. Let's say we're trying to find it out in the night sky. We're just trying to put together an image of it. How would you describe it, Kit? Yeah. So. When you look up the star formation, basically when I was looking at it, I was like, well, this just sort of looks like a deformed triangle or like a pair of underwear. Yeah, yeah, I could see that for sure. I was like, or like bandana, right? Something roughly triangle shaped. And and then I sort of like tilted my head and I was hungry and I was like, maybe it sort of looks like a peep. And like, you know, I love marshmallow. Mm -hmm. Like that's just, I was like, so I I don't know. That's what I saw. How about you? What did you see in this constellation? I mean, it's supposed to be a seagoat, right? Uh-huh. But I, I didn't see that. Like uh, like you, I definitely saw some variety of deformed triangle or sack or satchel or canvas bag. Maybe like a folded over napkin or something. I didn't mm-hmm. see anything that possibly could resemble like a mutant hybrid creature or anything compelling like that. I mean, I think it takes some imagination to get to Seagoat, so a lot Maybe of credit. Lot. Yeah, so a lot of credit to those who came up with it. But all right, I don't think our descriptions of the overall shape are super helpful, but let's just say you did still want to find it. Where and when would we be able to spot Capricornus? Yeah, so let's maybe start like with when. So September nights are the best time to see it. And I know this maybe feels a little bit strange because, of course, we just said we're starting with Capricornus because it's aligned with the January constellation and it's aligned with the astrological sign for December and January. I got to make a shout out to our mom's birthday here. You know, the original (laughs) Mm -hmm. Capricorn in our life. I'm sure she'll be tuning into this podcast by what, year nine? 
Maybe you're 10? Yeah. 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 All right. Because all right. She'll, she'll want to make sure that it, like all of the issues are ironed out first. Yeah. She yeah. just wants to see us at our best. About 300 episodes into it, we'll get the mom <laughs> feedback. And, yeah, uh, there you go. Sounds great. Yeah, so so there is an explanation. So I've just said, like, September night's the best time to see it. But, of course, it's the sign for December and January. But there is an explanation, and this one comes from the Lunar and Planetary Institute, or the LPI. Ah, yes, the LPI. Finally, I waited all of two minutes for another acronym. <laughs> I know. I know. I really feel like we might need a glossary. But I like to summarize their actually very elegant statement as wibbly wobbly timey wimey. Yes, as our friend the doctor would say. I mean, it does come down to that. Yeah, so basically, the astrological signs and their constellations were identified, you know, 2,500 years ago. And the Earth, doing like it does, has shifted on its axis, which changes the seasons and how they line up with the night sky. Exactly. So now we can see it in the fall, but let's say it's 2,500 years ago, and we would have seen it in December and January. Mm -hmm, Exactly. All right, great. So now we know when to see it and where we can find it. <laughs> so it's it's actually a very faint constellation, so you're going to need to be someplace pretty dark. But it is technically visible in both hemispheres. Yeah, I act like I don't know, but I can actually tell you the double technical here is right extension of 21 hours and declination of 20 degrees. Mm, that is technical. I mean, the easiest way to think of it is probably just like latitude and longitude of the night sky. And we got a lot of episodes to get into that in greater detail, I'm sure. Yeah. So for those of you who are just going to hang on to uh, hang on to your hats and wait for that explanation. With bated uh, breath, I'm sure. Ba- yeah. I'm, I'm sure. Another way that you can find it is by looking for the nearby constellations of Aquarius, the Water Bear, Achilla the Eagle, and Sagittarius the Archer. So you can find those ones, which are um, maybe easier to find. And we're going to give you some information about those coming soon to a podcast. Uh, this podcast near you we're going to be tackling Aquarius next month all right so we now know vaguely what it looks like when to find it but I want to know more about the astronomy let's talk a little bit about the stars that make up the constellation Capricornus It's comprised of 11 stars and most of them are known only by their Bayer designation ah Bayer let's talk about Bayer Sure, Kit. Let's talk about Bayer. Why don't you tell us, who is she or he? Mm. <laughs> we know we know it's a historical figure, so chances are good it's going to be a white man. I was very hopeful, but not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so Johann Bayer was a German lawyer and amateur astronomer who in 1603 published a star atlas, which is titled... Uranometria? Uranometria? I I don't know how to pronounce it, and um, this is not one of my strengths. So I'm going to go ahead and just call it um, Bayer Star Atlas. Excellent work. (laughs) I'm just going to, I'm going to work around what I can't pronounce. So this star atlas basically established a classification system of stars, based on apparent brightness and magnitude. But I think it's important to point out that this system was based on what Bayer was seeing in Germany in the late 1500s, early 1600s. And so, again, the night sky has changed. Wibbly-wobbly. Just like 2,500 years ago when they were first establishing the constellations, 1500s and 1600s, about 500 years ago, we still 
weren't quite at the same night sky we have today. Yeah, exactly. But this system was adopted by later astronomers. Yeah, he's the star guy. I mean, he got there first. And in Capricornus, he designated about 11 of these so-called stars. But this is a little misleading, because not only are we relying upon 1600s night sky, we're also relying upon 1600s technology. And some of the single stars that Bayer thought he saw are actually systems with multiple stars. Or they could even be a few stars that look close together to the eye, but are actually quite far apart. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes things that look close together from Earth might actually be really far apart in space, but they look similar to us from our vantage point because of differences in the apparent brightness of the stars. But yeah, let's talk about these bright stars. Do you want to start us off? Of course, as Bayer's system demands, I would start with nothing else but Alpha Capricorni, which is a star system with two stars in it. One is 690 light years away, and the other is 109 light years away. But despite this vast difference, they are indistinguishable without a telescope. <laughs> yes. Next up is Beta Capricorni, which is another multiple star system, and the system itself is 300 light years from us. Yeah, at least that system is close together in space as opposed to separated by like 600 light years. <laughs> Following that, we have Delta Capricorni, which, like Alpha and Beta, is a multiple star system. <laughs> Johan! Johan did not get this right. There's a lot of room for improvement, but they get to be better designated stars because he got there first. Moving on to Delta Capricorni, though, shocker, it has four stars, and the system is approximately 39 light years from Earth. So out of the Alpha, Beta, Delta, it's the closest of the three. Yeah, and all of these uh, systems also have Arabic names, which I'm not going to try to pronounce, but I am going to... I'm going to ask Jordan to do that. Uh -huh. that's, that's very considerate of you. Uh, so thoughtful. Th extremely thoughtful. And it's important. I'm at least going to mm -hmm. try to make an attempt. We share the night sky. And we want to be able to look at it from as many points of views as possible. But okay. Alpha Capricorni has an Arabic name as well. And it's known as Algaede, which translates to Billy Goat. Beta Capricorni has the Arabic name of Dabi which translates to butcher, and Delta Capricorni is also called Deneb el Gidi. And Deneb is Arabic for tail, and since this isn't the only constellation based on an animal, we'll be sure to hear Deneb again in other Arabic translations of other constellations. So these are the big three star systems that you'll find when you search for information about Capricornus online. Yeah, but they're kind of basic, Kit. Are they the best or the coolest stars in the constellation? Let's take a break, and then we'll return to find out this month's gold star recipient. So in this segment, we'll alternate picking the star in our monthly constellation that really moves or excites us. So I'm up first, and I'm going to give this month's gold star to Omega Capricorni. Really? You're going to start us off with an Omega star? I mean, what would Bayer say about this? You better have a pretty good reason, Kit. I always have a good reason. All right, all right. I'll let you elaborate. Bayer's not yeah. impressed, so this is your chance to win him over. All the years you've known me, have I never have I ever not had a good reason? You consistently come up with a good reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so Omega Capricorni is in the belly of the seagoat, 
and it's about a thousand light years from us. And because it's an omega star, there's been not a lot of attention to it. And there is still debate about what class of star it actually is. But what's interesting to me is that it's been identified as a potential runaway star. Don't know what that is, Kit. Sorry. That's okay. A runaway star is basically an object that's moving either faster than surrounding stellar matter or in some kind of unusual direction. So in this case, Omega Capricorni is moving faster than astronomers expect. And if there's one thing that I really like, it's just a reminder that the universe is vast. The Bayer in me is assuaged. <laughs> I do think Omega Capricorni, Star on the Run, is a great choice for Gold Star of the Month. But let's take a short break, and when we come back, let's switch directions a little bit, and we'll explore the myth of the seagoat himself. Now we're going to get into the myths about the origin of Capricornus and hopefully explore some of the themes too. So let's start by asking, off the top of your head, what did you remember about this myth, Kit? Honestly, I wasn't the most excited about starting with Capricornus because I actually didn't know it was a sea goat. I thought that it was just like a horned goat. Yeah, in that case, there's not a lot there, is there? Right. So I assumed without knowing that since it was a goat, I was like, okay, how does a goat get into the night sky? I was like, it must be a Zeus sexual encounter or possibly a punishment from Hera for a Zeus sexual encounter, right? That's always a pretty good assumption. And it's a good time here also to notice that we have focused primarily on Greek and Roman myths for this first season. But future seasons and episodes, we're excited to get into non-Western mythologies and stories as well. We can only do Zeus committed XYZ indiscretion, and these are the results, uh, before we kind of want to talk about how the rest of the world sees things. And it goes along with our discussion of the astronomy as well. So I looked up Capricornus and I found out it was a sea goat. And so I was surprised. And I guess this was a very long way of me saying that I remembered nothing about the myths. I had no idea what the myths behind this constellation were. Well, I'm happy to fill in the details. I also, my first impressions, I did know it was a sea goat, had no idea <laughs> the story behind it. So I was pretty excited to go through the myths and figure out its origin. Unfortunately, or fortunately, there seem to be two conflicting Greek myths about the origin of the seagoat. I know, which made me just feel worse because I was like, there's not just one myth that I don't know. There's, I had like two, I had two chances and I still didn't know, you know? Yeah, it's, I don't think it's the, the most uh, well-known myth, either of them, as we get into them. Yeah, why don't you start us off with uh, with the first one, with Precus. Okay, Precus. Not a household name. But he is described in Greek myths as the first seagoat. He's also the son of Kronos, who you may have heard of, the god of time. And although Precus is a seagoat, he is both intelligent and immortal. And he also has children, who wind up being smart like he is. Unlike Precus, though, his children aren't too into living in the ocean. And they're pretty desperate to get out under their father's thumb and explore on land. Ooh, just like the Little Mermaid. It's just like the Little Mermaid, except a 
2,500 years earlier, but basically it's the same thing. They climb up on land with their front legs and their feet, and they lie out in the sun and have a great time of it, and they spend more and more time up there and enjoy their freedom. But in classic Greek myths, things start to transform and change on them. Their fish tails turn to legs, and not only that, they start losing some of that intelligence that Precus's family is known for. They start becoming kind of stupid, goat-level stupid. <laughs> okay, wait, I want to interject here, because when we were prepping for this show, and we were talking about, you know, the goats, I was like, well, how, like, but how smart are goats? Like, surely we must know the answer to this question. And so I saw this headline from the Smithsonian Magazine that said, never underestimate a goat. It's not as stupid as it looks. So I didn't actually prioritize reading the article, and I, and now as I'm saying, I'm like, I really should have spent a little longer. Nah, nah, the, head, up, but the headline not- says it all. But they're not as stupid as they look. Alright, alright, alright. I ain't trying... This podcast isn't about goat hate. And maybe they are smart for a goat. But we have this great description of Precus as intelligent and immortal. And his children, well, they don't even have the ability to speak after a while. They've lost any sort of higher cognitive functions. And Precus is lonely and desperate. You know, he wants his children back. He's the first and only seagoat without them. But he has an ace up his sleeve. Turns out again, his father is Kronos, the god of time. So, Precus asks his father if he could turn back time. And maybe give Precus another chance to try to convince his children not to go on land. Precus gets his chance, Kronos acquiesces, and he desperately tries to come up with a new argument for his children not to go on land. And, shocker, it fails. Does Precus give up? No. Mm-mm. He goes back Mm-mm. to Kronos, asks if he'll turn back time again, and he'll try a different argument. Again, guess what? It fails. And they do this an innumerable amount of times, where Precus is allowed to go back in time and do his best, but no matter what, his kids are destined to leave him. And Precus eventually, he's not the fastest learner, but <laughs> tired of being alone and, and losing his children over and over again, the trauma and, and devastation of that... He just asks his father, like, I'm done. Could we could we end this? This has become this has become too much for me. But Kronos has one more gift for Precus, his son, and he throws him up into the night sky, into the stars, where of course he becomes the constellation known as Capricornus. And with this gift, Precus, although not able to interact with his kids, is able to watch them from above. That myth is definitely more compelling than a Zeus uh, conquest, and it's also interesting to me because it's really different from the second myth. Yeah, it's totally different. (laughs) So why don't you walk us through that one, and then we'll do our best to compare and contrast some themes here. Yeah, so the next myth of Capricornus is about Ajapan. Now, like a lot of myths, who exactly Ajapan is, is not clear. Yeah, we tried to do a lot of research here to get the myths right, but this one just gets really complicated really fast. Right, so maybe Ajapan is Pan, which is a pretty familiar Greek deity, but but we don't really know. And the name itself, Ajapan, translates to all goat and all stormy from the Greek words Pan and Aegis. Aegis, is that right? Yeah, it sounds good to me. Right. So in the myth, Ajapan is a goat or a goat hybrid, 
and he's memorialized in the stars after aiding the big guy Zeus in his battle with Typhos or Typhon. I think, let's, do you want to go with Typhon? Yeah, I like Typhon better than Typhos okay. too. And like a brief aside, this character I hope comes up a bunch here, <laughs> and I'm sure we will. I mean, he's kind of like the big bad of Greek mythology, and there are all sorts of like really great descriptions of Typhon in the myths. <laughs> he's described as like a colossus laying siege to heaven. He's referred to as the father of the monsters and a winged storm giant and a volcano demon. <laughs> Dang, they can really make a monster in the ancient past, can't they? Yeah, they definitely can, and shout out to Typhon for being one of the best. <laughs> definitely. So Zeus and Typhon are at war, as they do. Let's just call it the original Infinity War. <laughs> right. And so Ajapan is just going about life and finds himself essentially caught in the crossfire of this epic battle between Zeus and Typhon. But because he's just a goat or maybe a goat hybrid, he understandably flees. <laughs> flees, right, from the conflict, which yeah, you know, yeah, the same. Yeah. When there are when there are right? yeah, when there are gods and god killers going at work, I mm -mm. don't need to I'm be out. in that scene. I'm yeah, yeah. I'm, out. I'm not sure how much I have to offer. <laughs> so basically Ajapan flees for his life into the ocean, and in this process he's transformed into a half fish, half goat creature. But honestly, this is all just prologue, and this magical transformation essentially does nothing to get him a spot in the night sky. Yeah, it's true. There are a lot of people who get transformed in Greek myths and don't end up in the stars. But Ajapan's different. You know, he does have some acclaim on his name. He becomes a war hero, is what he is, basically, right? Yeah, exactly. So Zeus and Typhon, again, at war. Zeus gets dismembered by Typhon. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a god killer, <laughs> all right. Good. Yeah, rip, good. ripping Zeus apart. Typhon, right? Typhon's got game. Yeah, so Typhon uh, dismembers Zeus. Things are looking bleak for our home team, you know, the Olympians. Yeah, not looking good. Not looking good. And so Ajapan and Hermes end up joining forces to find and collect Zeus's scattered body parts. With his body restored, Zeus is able to finally defeat Typhon and imprison him. Grateful for Ajapan's help, Zeus puts him in the stars as the constellation Capricornus. Perfect. So it's basically his reward for coming in first place, the most important scavenger hunt of all time. At least yes. as far as Greek myths are concerned. Find Zeus's body parts and put them back together. But alright, <laughs> this is still a pretty different myth than Precus, and I'm not sure if there's any overlap in themes, but after the break, let's do our best to explore these further. So let's talk about the themes in these myths. Starting off with our favorite seagoat dad, Precus. Precus the dad! <laughs> yes, in this first myth, I definitely saw the outlines of the common allegory about choice and destiny. When told from Precus's perspective, however, the myth really seems to conclude that destiny is immutable, right? Since Precus's children continue and inevitably leave him. Yeah, he has infinity chances with his father being the god of time. Right. And I don't think that's really the intended lesson here. Very rarely is that allegory about um, destiny being unchangeable. So when I started to think a bit more, I started to see this myth as a parable about parenthood and control, because no matter how Precus tries, his children, they go on to land. 
in the end, the lesson here seems to be more about how parents have to eventually let go of their own ideas about what their children should be like or what they should do and let them live their own lives. Yeah, I think fast forward 2000 years, Will Smith said it right. Parents just don't understand. And the Seagull kids, you know, they have their own dreams. They want to go up on land and do their own thing. And I hope that the moral or the theme of this story could be something like parents got to let their kids be who they want to be, even if, you know, it doesn't make sense to you as Precus or whoever the parent may be. These are parenting tips brought to you from two childless women in their 30s. You're absolutely welcome. <laughs> no, I agree with your analysis. I think we can see ultimately there's something interesting about Precus because he's forced to compromise too. You know, he knows what's best for his children in his head, but he can't enforce his will upon them. And he can't give up his attachment to them either. They're his children. He's the only seagoat. So by asking Kronos to make him sort of a celestial observer, he gets to observe and be a part of his kid's life. But Precus kind of loses all the things that he was scared his kids were going to lose. He loses the ability to communicate and control them. Yeah, exactly, right? The kids no longer have intelligence or speech, and neither does he. And that's the compromise he's forced to be in, to be in their lives at all. Yeah, and I think that's perhaps relatable to those parents out there, although, uh, eh, what do we know about it? I don't know. I mean, I had a fish once. Not much, not much. <laughs> you had a fish? Yeah, Mom put it in the toilet after three days. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, oh, I won. That I, sounds right. Yeah, I won it at a synagogue. I was trying to throw ping pong balls into little jars, and I got one in, and I won the free fish. And didn't last long before mom decided I didn't. I didn't need a fish in my life. <clears throat> That's a topic for a different day. I think that was a very informative experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, lucky for us, the second myth of Ajapan doesn't involve parenthood at all, so we can just move far away from that. Do you want to uh, walk us through the theme or purpose of our second myth? This is a parent-free one, which is great, Good. but it's also a little bit difficult for me to decipher. You know, we did the research and we found mm -hmm. out that the seagoat myth doesn't originate in Greece. It first comes in Babylonia and is later assimilated by the Greeks into their mythology. And I think that's got to account for some of the ambiguity and the vagueness of this myth. Yeah, definitely. And relates back again to that idea that Greek and Roman myths aren't the only constellation myths. No. But I do, like, wonder, why did they tell this story? So clearly they're trying to, like, create some kind of seagoat story. But myths, like lots of other kinds of stories, are being told for some kind of purpose. So, like, why did they tell this story, aside from just needing to shoehorn a seagoat into their uh, mythology? Yeah, no, I mean, we can pull something out, really, about adaptation and change, and we're going to get into that later, but... That seems even incidental to the story. Like, the real moral of this story seems to be kind of like a lot of Greek myths. If you're good to Zeus, Zeus will reward you for your loyalty. Mm -hmm. We don't even know really who Ajapan is. He's like indistinct. He's an inexact archetype. He's just there to serve the idea that being a loyal servant pays off. Mm. And at the Best maybe this myth suggests that no matter if you get turned into a mutant, you can still be rewarded for helping the powerful. I mean, it's not a really great moral, and maybe someone else could dig out something more meaningful from it, but it has potential. 
And we'll discuss that too. Yeah, definitely. I do think that the seagoat transformation piece of the story is interesting, but as you said, really not the point of the story. And like you said, I think we can think about how else to tell that story, what's interesting about that. But ultimately, we have two myths, Precus, Japan. Can we draw any parallels? Are there any common themes for us to wrap up with here? Yeah, I really hope this segment works better in future podcasts because I don't think there's a <laughs> lot that brings these two together. I mean, we have Precus, Seagoat, sad dad, desperate parent, first and last mm-hmm. of his kind. And that's a hyper-specific story about parenthood and control. And then on the other hand, we have this just vague, archetypical trickster forced into a new form who becomes a war hero and is rewarded for his service to Zeus. Those aren't have much together to do with each other. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, it's not necessarily shoehorning, but the seagoat seems to be something of a template. It can fit multiple narratives. Yeah, I guess maybe the only thing we can pull out is just that myths themselves contain multitudes, even ones that seem to be mundane or inconsequential like the seagoat. And so I think that's something to keep in mind as we get to some of the more notable constellations to come. Our next segment here is called Ret Constellation. We're going to focus on looking at these myths from new ways and different perspectives. Right. So I'm up first with Ret Constellationing Precus's myth. That's a verb now. We're Ret Constellationing things. Oh, it's a verb now. So (laughs) when I was Ret Constellationing this first myth, my mind just immediately, the first thing I thought was, what is up? With these kids. Yeah, it seems to be the story is just them giving Precus the middle finger, right? Right. Over and over and over again in, in various different infinity loops. Right. So in the original myth, of course, Precus is our protagonist. He perceives his children's choices as foolish. And based upon his actions, his sense of loss, we're led to feel that being just a goat rather than a seagoat is just some terrible tragedy. Terrible, terrible tragedy. Uh, For listeners, that is Jordan's Charles Barkley. That's as Uh, good as it gets here, guys. Keep tuning in. Maybe we'll (laughs) workshop the Charles Barkley along the way, too. Maybe. uh, We'll put a pin in that. So it's this terrible, terrible tragedy, right, to be a goat. But I think that the alternative perspective is more compelling, at least for me as a child and not as a parent. And it raises a lot of questions. Why did all of Precus's children make this decision? Yeah, not a single one of them wants to chill out with Precus under the sea. Right. What was it like in Precus's house growing yeah, up? Yeah, facts. And so what happens What happens to the kids when they do leave the sea? How do they cope with not being connected with their father? Does it bring them peace when he accepts their choice and watches over them from the sky? Or does it feel like he's there judging them or that they've failed him? There just seems like there's a lot of potential to tell a broader story about parent-child conflict and relationships with this myth as the backdrop in the inspiration. So my pitch for this Red Constellation would be a story called 
Precus's house, which deals with these issues from the perspective of two or three of his children. Because, of course, kids in the same house experience things differently, yet these kids all sort of ended up making the same decision. I think that's interesting narratively. And I honestly feel that despite the sea goat and celestial time travel elements of it all, the story would be pretty engaging and relatable, especially for folks that have these kinds of tense or difficult relationships with their parents. Yeah, I think that's a really good ret constellation. We kind of get to see the myth from a different point of view, and there's no real proof that Precus is the protagonist. That's just a story that got passed down. And so if you're going to offer me Precus's house, where we get a little bit into maybe Precus's dark side, or the reason why his kids left him, I'm excited to subscribe to whatever streaming service brings that to life. I want to know more about these kids. I want to know who was right, who was wrong, and I can't wait to find out. Uh, well, I'm open for TV show, movie purchase offers. Yeah. I'm open. I'm yeah, open. I know. You're open. I'm open to, to somebody buying my ideas. That'd be fine. Yeah, Precus's so... house coming soon. Streaming service near you. Yes. So... How did your rec constellation of the second myth go, Jordan? How was that? Well, Kit, you are kind enough to give me the hard one again. And like we went into at the beginning, the incidental issues of transformation, I'd like to explore those a lot more. Mm -hmm. Like, what's it like to have such a drastic change? Like, we don't get to see how Japan copes with that. It's just sort of a declarative statement. Now he's a seagoat. We don't really see what he learns or how he's treated differently. We don't really even get any motivation what goes on between this transformation and his decision to go look for Zeus's body parts and help win the war. All we know is he's undergone this transformation, it happened against his will, and he's a hero. A wreck constellation that is interesting to me is focusing on that transformation a little more, because it's so often seen as a punishment in Greek myth, mm -hmm. and you could have the framework here of telling a story about how adaptation and transformation can help you survive, or could actually be a good thing. And if we viewed it from that perspective, I think there's more nuance there. And it makes it more about, you know, the subtleties of Japan's experience, and less about just a basic moral of, it's great to help Zeus, the sky daddy. <laughs> I mean, it does seem like good things happen to people who help Zeus, as long as they're not, you know, sleeping with him. But I do like that reconciliation and thinking about maybe it's the case that this transformation enabled Ajapan to help Zeus in some way. So I, I like that idea. And I would definitely throw out the title, The Adaptation of Ajapan. That's a lot better and more alliterative than what I came up with, which was just Metamorphosis 2. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't work too hard on that one. It's, it's, it's fine. Yeah, there's um, a Metamorphosis there. Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. sure. Ultimately, I think that both of these myths are great launching places for stories that use the original myth as a base, but approaches them in a way that would deepen or provide more complexity to the stories and make them more engaging and relevant for us now. Couldn't agree more, Kit. This has been a blast, Kit, but it's time to wrap things up. And with Capricornus, we've figured out where to find it in the night sky. We've discussed some of the mythology that makes up the constellation. But for our last segment, we want to figure out where we could find Capricornus in pop culture. 
Definitely, and we wanna keep this segment short, sweet, silly, and so here's how it's gonna work. We have scoured the internet. Scoured. Or at least, you know, done a cursory search. <laughs> Somewhere between uh, scour and cursory search for right. sure. Right. So we have done some searching, done some thinking about where we've seen these constellations in pop culture. So we'll pick our favorite and least favorite pop culture occurrences, and then we'll kind of wish upon a star or make a pitch for how we would like to see this constellation in pop culture going forward. Yes, we're going to do our best here. The internet's pretty vast, and mm -hmm. the reference points are getting closer and closer to infinity every day. So if we miss your favorite or we missed your least favorite, this is a great chance to let us know. Yeah, definitely let us know what you find. So let's start, Jordan, why don't you start with your favorite and least favorite pop culture appearances of the constellation Capricornus. Yeah, this one was hard, Kit. There's not a ton out there. Not a lot of Capricornus branding. A tragedy. It was tough. So I kind of, sort of... Did the exact opposite of the assignment and turned to astrology. What, Jordan? No, <laughs> we talked about this. We yeah. talked. We were like, we we're like, no, we're not gonna do astrological signs because that's not like we're in astronomy. Like, yeah, yeah, story. yeah. Yeah. Well, oh. Kit, I did some oh research. This is definitely cheating. I'm already regretting this segment. <laughs> maybe you could, maybe you should. But okay, I just did some Google searches for Capricorns and pop culture. And of course, astrology was the first link. And mm -hmm. I found a great list of canonical Capricorns, according to their creators. My okay. favorite was Leslie Nope, whose mm -hmm. date of birth is January 18th, 1975, according to the Parks and Recreation canon. And, of course, Leslie Nope's my favorite for all the reasons we love. Smart, organized, thoughtful, generous human beings. I think she's mm -hmm. just a great representation of that. And my least favorite, as I went up and down on this list, just turned out to be this guy, Voldemort. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's from the Harry <laughs> Potter franchise. But his canon date of birth is December 31st. 1926. Mm. So Ooh, both, he's yeah, old. He's, he's a little bit old and long in the tooth, this Voldemort. But all mm. right. Uh, I know this wasn't assigned, wasn't exactly the assignment. Maybe I just want an excuse to talk about Leslie Nope and Voldemort. Yeah. <laughs> but they are canon Capricorns, okay? I mean, you know that I can't object to Leslie Nope. Uh, I love Leslie Nope. So um, I'm going to let you do it this time, but you really have to work harder, Jordan. Come on. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not the best researcher or rule follower for that matter. Oh, I am a rule follower. That's true. So I'll get us back on track by following the rules. Yeah, yeah. let him know what this segment was actually intended to be. <laughs> But I, I do agree with you. This one was a lot harder to find than something like Aquarius that we'll talk about next month. Um, there were some things like Tropic of Capricorn, both the location and the book. There was a music label from the 70s. There's Caprica from Battlestar Galactica. Um, but none of those things really spoke to me. So in the end, I decided that my favorite Capricornus appearance is in Stargate. It is in position 15 on the Stargate. And it's my favorite because I I just really like young James Spader. I mean, 
can't. I don't know if your answer uh, is any better than mine. It's quite a pull, but I appreciate that. <laughs> well, it's the it's the actual, you know, astronomical constellation. Yes, yes. If we on were on if we were on the Stargate, we would see that deformed triangle we know yeah. and love, Capricornus. Totally. Yes. I do have a feeling we'll hear about Stargate again when pickings are slim because there are a lot of constellations on the Stargate. Yeah, I think Stargate's going to be one of our go-tos when we're discussing some of the constellations that aren't entirely pop culture hits. Stargate, all allow. It's a pretty good favorite, and any discussion of Leslie Nope and young James Spader in the same segment works for me. But what was your least favorite? So for my least favorite, I decided to stay in the sort of movie media theme, and I went with Capricorn One, which is a space conspiracy thriller from 1978, which makes me think, since it's space-related, that the constellation was indeed the inspiration. Yeah, I found this one out eventually, but I didn't get a chance to check it out. What about you? Did you get to see this film? (laughs) Well, okay, so I didn't watch the film. Okay. But I did watch the trailer, and it was long. Yep, they used to do trailers quite long in the 70s. Yeah, it's like a five-minute, six-minute trailer. (laughs) It's a long trailer. I watched them in-depth reviews, and so the movie might be fine, and maybe it's even good, but it's my least favorite because what I read about it is that the clips from the movie have been sort of co-opted by folks who try to make the claim that the moon landing was a hoax. And Ooh. I really don't like that. Yeah. So that's where I'm going to put my chips in terms of least favorite. Yeah, that's a pretty, pretty good point. We don't mm-hmm. like to see moon landing hoax conspiracy Mm-mm. theories. And if this is one of the films that they use to prove their point, it's going to mm-hmm. have to be our least favorite. It's going to have to be a thumbs down. Yeah, this is an astronomy podcast, despite my best efforts to derail <laughs> it. And yeah, turns out we did land on the moon. Mm-hmm. All right, Kit. So... If we need to watch this movie, if Capricornus 1 has been cruelly and unjustly stolen <laughs> by the conspiracy theorists, let us know on our socials. Now let's get to our wish list, Kit. Yeah, so our what what we wish for. What I mean, why don't you go first? I, I, I want to hear what you came up with first. I'm feeling less confident about mine. I mean, I feel very confident about mine. When I'm thinking about <laughs> Capricornus branding, I have not just one, but two ideas. Oh. In, yeah. Oh, yeah. Immediate. Overachiever here. Hey, I got ideas. I might not be the best researcher, but I'll be able to think about Capricornus according to my own dimensions and qualifications. And I hope you'll be impressed with what I came up with. First of all, you've heard of Rubber Ducky. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of... Capricornus bath toy? Just imagine how happy you would be after a long, stressful day navigating this sea goat above and beyond the bubbles. I think that would be great. Mm -hmm. I'm excited for Capricornus to join the realm of bath toys. But Mm -hmm. let's say you had your eyes on even a bigger prize. Let's say life's going great for you. You've moved into a new mansion with a pool and you're just looking for the one thing to complete it. You know, there's crocodile floaties and all sorts of other pool floaties you could choose from. But what about 
seagoat floaty. Uh huh. That's <laughs> yep. good. Yeah, yeah. Get yourself on the seagoat floaty. You can ride it around your pool. No one else will have it. And those are both of my suggestions if you're getting into the Capricornus industry. I did my best. What about you, Kit? Where are you putting this seagoat? Well, I felt really, um, I thought this was really good. And then I tried it out on some people and they didn't like it as much. But by that time, it was like too late. So now I'm here with this, which is tuna Mm -hmm. that's branded seagoat of the sea. Okay. You know, like chicken of the sea. Oh, yeah. No, I got that, kid. I got that. (laughs) No, it's good. It's good. Seagoat of the sea. I thought it was cute. Yeah. Now I'm hearing seagoat sea twice. Like, I get that as a a concern. No, no. I can imagine the nice little cartoon seagoat on the aluminum can with a big smile on its face knowing that you're Mm -hmm. about to eat it. It Makes sense to me. Well, you know, it's only a matter of time till our equally as good idea as good ideas one of them comes true. Yeah, one sure. of these. Only looks, a matter of time. Yeah, either we'll be riding seagoats or eating seagoats. Either way, it's only a matter of time. <laughs> well, thanks for staying with us here today. We've made it through one twelfth of the zodiac. Please join us next month on Starry Time. And we're going to discuss Aquarius, the water bearer. This has been Kit. And Jordan. Sisters, lovers of stars and stories. And we'll see you next time. On Starry Time. Time.